Hello and welcome to Look Around You, Public Health Matters. I'm Andrew Morris and with me are Ibrahim Al-Asafra and a couple of esteemed co-hosts. Hello, my name is Ibrahim Al-Asafra. I'm a Master of Public Health graduate from Case Western Reserve University and my concentration is Health Policy and Management. Hi everyone, my name is Aditya Kumar. I am an MPH student here doing my concentrations in Health Policy and Management and Health Promotion and Disease Prevention. Hi all, my name is Will Patterson and I'm a dual MD-MPH student between Case Western Reserve and the Cleveland Clinic. It's our pleasure to welcome uh, virtually from Baltimore, Maryland, Dr. Paul Rothman. Dr. Rothman is the Dean of the Medical Faculty for the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and Chief Executive Officer of Johns Hopkins Medicine, a $10 billion academic medical enterprise and health system with a global reach. As Dean and CEO, Dr. Rothman oversees both the Johns Hopkins Health System and the School of Medicine. A rheumatologist and molecular immunologist, he came to Johns Hopkins in 2012 after serving as the Dean of the Carver College of Medicine at the University of Iowa. Previously, he served as the Head of Internal Medicine at the University of Iowa, and prior to that, as Vice Chairman for Research and Founding Director of the Division of Pulmonary Allergy and Critical Care Medicine at Columbia University College of Physicians and Surgeons, where he joined the faculty in 1990. In 1980, Phi Beta Kappa graduate of the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, Dr. Rothman received his medical degree from Yale University in 1984, earning a place in the Alpha Omega Alpha Honor Medical Society. He then trained at New York Presbyterian, Columbia University Irving Medical Center in Internal Medicine and Rheumatology, and accepted a postdoctoral fellowship at Columbia University prior to joining its medical school faculty. Dr. Rothman is a member of the National Academy of Medicine, the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, and the American Society for Clinical Investigation. He has served as president of the Association of American Physicians and the Society of Medical Administrators, and was elected as a fellow of the American Association for the Advancement of Sciences. Dr. Rothman, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for reading that long laundry list. So um, you could have truncated it, it would have been <laughs> I'll start off. Dr. Rothman, can you tell us a little bit more about your professional journey? What interested you um, about medicine and healthcare, and then what inspired you to stick with it? Well, that's a good question. You know, I came into medicine really of wanting to be a molecular biologist. I, in high school, um, maybe before your time, there had been uh, the beginning of this field of molecular biology, which was really in Berkeley. California, Stanford, and at MIT and Harvard. And I thought that that was pretty cool. So I went, actually went to MIT to learn how to be a molecular biologist uh, and spent a lot of my undergrad time um, doing science. <clears throat> and then decided that I loved science, but I thought I, had want, I wanted to do science that could, more, uh, that could be more directly uh, implied for patient care. So that's why I went to medical school. But I went to Yale because you know, at Yale, everyone had to do a thesis. And, it sort of really was a med school that was um, had a foundation in science. So, um, so I did that. And, and I'll be honest, was, I was a college rower and I knew I could row uh, at Yale too. So I, was, so I loved Yale and the science, but I also knew I could row a lot. So that, that's what I did. So. Awesome. Thank you for sharing. Um, I guess as the leader of a healthcare system now and the Dean of the School of Medicine, you must be particularly aware of how to educate tomorrow's healthcare leaders and meet the emerging challenges in the field. How has this influenced your approach to medical education? I think you have a lot of assumptions that I actually know how to do that. So maybe I'll take a step back and just sort of tell you a little bit about what we think about. 
for educating the next generation. So, you know, it's um, funny. So I've been a, a med school dean between Ireland here for 14 years. And I've always thought that the one issue with medicine is um, uh, we don't know how to measure our success. Um, you can throw out a lot of measures of success, like how people do on board scores, where they do the residency. And, and those are important, obviously, but I, I don't think really captures, because if you really want to think about it, what you're trying to do as a medical educator is teach a, enough knowledge that people will have what they need at their fingertips. Really more of a thought pattern that you have to do when you apply the facts you know to that patient that's sitting right in front of you, but also considerations of listening, uh, empathy, um, uh, hard work, and um, and just a sort of engagement with a patient that that um, I think is as important as any facts that you can memorize. And so we're pretty good at, at measuring facts that people memorize by board scores, but this latter part, and, and it's not that medicine hasn't tried to measure it over the years. Um, we had this part to be at the boards where they were supposed to, but it, we found out we're not very good at it. It's hard to measure. So it is hard to measure. And, you know, we're increasingly trying to understand how to measure it. I'll just tell you what some of the stuff we're doing here. So, you know, we have all of our clinical data in a data lake up in the cloud. And we're starting, and that's not only the medical record, but all imaging, and we're getting all our omics in it, all our tests. And so, you know, we're trying to use that to do things like precision medicine, but we're actually trying to do precision education. To, to try to use the data we collect during medical school, for example, to try to see if we can't more personalize medical education. So I'll give you some examples. So in radiology, um, they could look at radiology resonance and read how many times they read CT scans and tell how many times different resonance their reading was overread by the attending physician because it needed to be a better interpretation. So if you can do that sort of at the granular level for each patient, for each um, student, you can start to think about, well, maybe that student get overread more than the others will need more time in the CT scan uh, room. Um, and that's just one example. We're doing it in plastic surgery where we are videotaping the surgeries and there's some pretty good data from up at Harvard that um, how much you move your hands during the surgery reflects how experienced you are. And so if you can think about it using AI, you can start to think about just measuring resonance movements during the same exact surgery and try to use really objective data. None of that's gonna measure the other things I talked to you about, which is empathy, um, which, and ability to effectively communicate and all of that. And, and so we're starting down the road um, to try to measure things more objectively. I, I tell you what we're not gonna do, right? We're not gonna make people 120 of our medicine sit in class all day and listen to didactic lectures. I think that is, it's funny when I first came, you know, the, at most med schools, attendance at those didactic lectures are about 30%. And so I keep telling my medical educators that, that our customers are voting with their feet, that they don't find this of great value uh, because we, we videotaped every lecture and they could two exit on the treadmill, you know, later in the day and, and and then rewind it when they miss something. And so I think, you know, I think the pandemic has hastened a lot of changes in education, not just in medicine, but in all fields. And um, so I, I think the way I was taught, gosh, 
for, uh, end of med school 42 years ago will not be the way that, that people who went to med school this year get taught. It, it's it's going to be fundamentally different. And, you know, the futurists always say that we look in the future, change occurs more slowly, but is deeper than you ever imagined. So I think what we're going to see is it's going to, you're going to have real change in medical education. It'll take a little longer than people think, but it'll be pretty deep, I think. Thank you. I'm excited to hear that as a future medical student, that there'll be more hands-on experience and better metrics of how to measure success. Dr. Rothman, you had um, touched on how the pandemic has altered some, or has brought in some changes. Um, I'm wondering, uh, the pandemic has kind of increased the public's knowledge of public health. And I'm wondering, as the uh, CEO of a large health institution, if you have some ideas for ways that hospital systems and public health systems can work together better to improve population health? That's a loaded question, Will. It's <laughs> complex. I thought you were going to how we can better communicate with our communities, which is part of the answer to your questions. I think, you know, if you look at one of the, one of the outcomes of the pandemic, you'll see that we had we had greatly underinvested in our public health infrastructure. I think you all can, that's very well documented. And so what you, and also we had uninvested and it was so dispersed, disparate and, um, and heterogeneous that it was hard for a state or country to have a public health response to the virus. We didn't, we had at least 50 responses one in each state and the truth is cities had different ones. So we were, and, and, and you know, but, and that's sort of somebody describes our country and what we make, makes us great is could we, we do 50 experiments every time we try to do something at least, and then see, and then find the best way. And then, and then, and then try to understand best practices and, and evolve them. So in some ways it's good. On the other hand, it, you know, since the virus didn't adhere well to state lines, we found that in fact, state-specific public health measures got overwhelmed by a virus that, that, that doesn't know those barriers. And, and so then you think, what's the future? I, I will say, and probably, I, I'd love to hear what your faculty say. One of the things that I think did happen in the pandemic was that large health systems took a major role in the public health of the communities, more so than, we, than most normally do. I mean, we were the ones giving vaccines in the neighborhoods. I mean, we had buses in neighborhoods. We went to long-term uh, care facilities. We did nursing homes. We did testing. We actually had a test, you know, right away. Uh, and so we were testing people who needed our tests. Because if you remember early in the pandemic, it would take four to eight days to get a test from a commercial. And we were turning us around in 24 hours. So different hospitals, different nursing homes, they had their key samples and we would do testing. We did, we did a lot of vaccination. We did a lot of vaccine education in poor communities. Um, we set up, uh, us in the University of Maryland, set up our convention center here in Baltimore to be a hospital with over 200 beds. And those were the people who basically had discharged but weren't ready to go home. So they needed some care, but helped decrease our volumes in our hospitals. We, we with the city um, took a hotel to put people, it was us, University of Maryland, we opened a hotel where like people who couldn't go home because they had multifamily houses, but had COVID could go. 
for a couple of days. And so really the health systems in the country partnered with uh, local public health, either city or state or county in ways that I don't think normally happen. And, and if you think about it, it was because a, we had a health systems had a vested interest in making sure this worked because we were overwhelmed and would be increasingly overwhelmed if the virus went haywire. We, you know, we're here to improve health the community. That's sort of our mission. And finally, the public health infrastructure was underinvested in, and we had the ability and the resources to help put people forward that the local health department did not have the resources for. Certainly early in the pandemic, later money flew, but first six months, nine months, they didn't have the resources. I mean, we provided a lot of people to help. And so when you think about what comes out of this, I really hope that we don't think of the delivery system separate from the public health system. I think we demonstrated here that there is value in their collaboration to improve the health of the community. So though to your point, I hope that's a lesson learned. Um, you never know, but it's certainly, if, if when people ask me, I think that's one of the biggest lessons for the pandemic was that delivery systems effectively could partner with local health departments counties or states to, to, to really care for populations um, and help resource those efforts. That's a wonderful response. I, I hope that stays uh, through my career as well. As kind of a follow-up to that, I think traditionally MDs are not trained to consider public health particularly well, maybe individual health moreover. So I'm wondering, um, with the knowledge of what we were just talking about, integration um, between health systems and public health, what do you think needs to change in the medical curriculum to encourage that uh, integration? So we have, I don't know the number, Will, at least I think 25% of med students get an MPH, something like that. I mean, for the School of Public Health is right across the street from us. One third of the faculty at the School of Public Health are MDs that have appointments in school medicine. So we are, really tied to our school of public health. And so, and, um, and also a lot of students either get MPHs or the, a lot of the MD PhDs actually do their PhD in the school of public health. Um, so we're very tied with them. We think most of our students get pretty good public health um, educations. Uh, we do basically interprofessional education with the school nursing, school of public health and us, especially when they go from first, before they go into the um, wards, and we do a lot of that public health training there. So we're trying to actually incorporate that in our normal curriculum. And we have, the, we have to, be, to be honest, we just have the, we're blessed to have like the best school of public health in the country right across from us. So um, it's a little bit easier for us, I think, than other schools to, to incorporate it. Dr. Rothman, I had a little oh, question about um, the you know, medical training process. Now there's two routes, um, the allopathic versus osteopathic medicine. Um, what is, the difference between the two from your perspective? How do you think the medical training processes are different? And what do you think this means for public health having DOs and MDs work together? So, you know, we don't have that many. And actually the DO thing is a Midwest and West phenomenon. So in the Northeast, there aren't as many DOs. When I was a Dean at Iowa in medicine, we had a lot of DOs. Um, so it's, it's, a, it's a weird question. So, you know, all residents, a bunch of DOs, they were superb. The truth is, when we had residents at Iowa in internal medicine, uh, I couldn't distinguish a DO from an MD. 
And so, you know, but they were all the creme de la creme. I, I can't tell you if you went to a second or third tier town, would that be true? I mean, we just didn't see those people. So we, the, the, the top, the, the, you know, the, the great DOs, the great MDs are indistinguishable, but, you know, and I can't really, I just don't know enough to tell you all that. You know, the DO schools, as you know, they're even heterogeneous in how they deal with the clinical rotations. Some have them, some have to farm them out to other places. That, that always worries me when you farm out your clinical rotations, because I know how you really have control over the curriculum and ensure that the students all have a uniform experience. But again, I'm not an expert in it, and maybe they have ways to do that. But um, so, so the answer is, you know, I, a lot of DOs on my faculty at Iowa, a lot of the residents, they were great, not indistinguishable from my MD. Thank you. Um, I had another question. So how do healthcare systems like John Hopkins balance this individual aspect of patient care versus the public health needs of a community around them? So you probably don't know this, but y'all, so the state of Maryland has a very unique payment system. Over, over 40 years, we have, have an all-payer system here in Maryland, where irregardless of your insurance, if you're Medicaid, Medicare, commercial, or uninsured, the hospital gets paid the same amount of money. It's the only place in the country like that. Starting about eight years ago, we, we changed it even more to do a, what we call capitated model of care. So all hospitals in general know what they're going to make before the year begins and can't make more than that or less. So they can charge up to an authority. Of, so it's a very unique state. And you know when it's, it's got some good and bad parts. One of the really good parts is that unlike other places I've been that have poorer people that don't pay as well, our system has no, there is no incentive not to treat everyone the same because our hospitals can get paid the same. So it's really unique. So the, the poor people, the Medicaid patients, and even our indigent care that don't Medicaid, for instance, um, if they're between Medicaids or if they're new to the country and haven't gotten citizenship and all that, the cost of those are baked into our rates too. So we, we get made whole for all that. Um, so it's a pretty cool system. And, and so we, we can take care of everyone. And, it does also incentivize us to try to take care of communities. Because if, if you can keep people out of the hospital, we're going to make the same revenue if we have 60,000 admissions or 58,000 admissions. And the truth is the variable cost of those 2,000 admissions can be a nice margin. So we're somewhat incentivized to, to look at our community differently than you are. Uh, and so we try to do things. It's, it's interesting. I tell you one of the things we do. So, when we had, um, uh, when Freddie Gray died and we had um, the uprising after Freddie Gray, we did a lot of soul searching. And one of the things we did is we reached out to our communities and we had a lot of community meetings and asked, What's, what can we do to help the community? You know that what we heard again and again was the number one way we could help the community? It was jobs. They wanted good paying jobs. So we have some wonderful programs for that. We are the largest employer of people who get released from prison, who are non-violent non offenders. Uh, we hire 125 of them a year at the Hopkins Hospital. We have committed huge amounts of money to hire locally and buy locally, preferentially. And we set benchmarks for ourselves. And so we try to support the local economy both by 
hiring local and by trying to, to help uh, small businesses here by buying local. So, you know, there are a lot of ways to, to help public health. I think increasing the income of the people living in your community is one of the better ways to improve the health of that community. Because a lot, of, a lot of bad health uh, stems out of poverty. That's fascinating. Have you found these initiatives to be successful just out of curiosity? Absolutely. You know, the funny, the, the hiring the ex-offenders, um, it's been very successful. Some of them actually go on and really become leaders in the hospital. Now, I won't tell you we have 100% attention of them. We don't. Um, some of them, and we do special things around them because they are, uh, but uh, we found some of them, you know, they become techs in the ORs or radiology techs. So um, it's really interesting. And, you know, buying local is something we're committed to because, we, you know, we live in an impoverished city in a Baltimore is, you know, out of, you know, parts of Baltimore is wealthy. But if you look at the inner city, not around our, actually on the west side is better, but even around our hospital and the life expectancy, you know, it's over 20 years different in about three miles away. And it, it correlates with poverty. And so I think the more we can try to lift up those communities by investment, um, I think it'll be something that helps us um, and helps the community. Dr. Rothman, I want to ask you about, um, you know, in this podcast, we've talked with a lot with other guests of the, of the podcast about the challenges of communicating sound science and the impact of misinformation. Have you faced these challenges in your role and how have you addressed them? You know, so we had, we, we required all our employees to be vaccinated or they would lose their jobs if they didn't have a medical or religious exemption. And we took a lot of time. We didn't rush it because we had a lot of vaccine hesitancy. And it's really funny when you break down why there wasn't one answer. It was different in different populations from people who didn't have internet access because and our vaccine to sign up for vaccine, you had to go into uh, my chart and Epic. Some of them didn't have Epic, some of them didn't have. So we had to sign them up and, and help them site by site to sign up. You had some people who were just scared. They were scared of the vaccine. And you had to have someone who looks like them with healthcare expertise talk them through it. Sometimes it was a minister and not a healthcare leader. So we, we partnered with local churches to try to do that. And this, it's funny. So the history is we required everyone to have an influenza vaccine two years after I came, like 2014, something like that. Before you mandated it for employment, uh, only about two thirds of people got influenza vaccine. When you mandated it, it's 99.9%. So there is this issue of people won't do it unless you really make them. And we found some of that too. So Ryan, at some point you just gotta cut it and say, nope, you got one week and if not, you're gonna leave the institution. And we lost out of 45,000 employees, 99. We just didn't wanna do it, which, we look at most academic centers, that's about right. That's about where most people ended up, of 100-ish, because the systems aren't that different in size. And, and so, you know, what we learned from that is it's a lot of different, there's not one answer. And, you know, it's one of the problems we all have in academia, oops, someone's gone, um, is that, um, or leadership anyway, is how you effectively communicate with the diverse workforce that you have who, you know, it's very easy for a leader to just send out email, uh, you know, big email and say, okay, everyone everyone's got it, right? But 
reality, huge swaths of your employees either don't have access to good internet or don't need internet. And so you, you learn that you gotta be smarter than that and use a variety of, of, of different mechanisms to communicate effectively. And even with that, you're gonna get some people who you're just not gonna convince. And then you just gotta move on. Um, hate to say that, but at some point you just, and you know, we, we gotta keep our patients and everyone else safe because, you know, especially when Omicron hit, we were very happy. I mean, because we had a lot of people get Omicron, but very few of our staff got sick with Omicron, which is because they were vaccinated. Dr. Rothman, leading through that question as well, um, a segment of the public remain resistant at best or hostile at worst toward public health um, figures and even scientific facts. How can leaders in the, our field best address these challenges and protect public health polarization? I don't know. It is, you know, we, oh, my wife's a gastroenterologist. When we go home and we read about some of the misinformation, disinformation, you know, when we fly and people aren't wearing masks or wearing them under the nose, you know, I, it actually, it is, I think, as a physician scientist or any healthcare leader, it is, I think, what an existential moment for us to understand why this is. And I, don't know that we know, and I don't know if we have the solution. So I, I answer most of your other questions with at least some answer. For that one, I'll tell you, it scares me. And I've heard a lot of people talk about solutions, uh, but I haven't seen, uh, you know, again, in a limited group, you can do it, but you know, you've got millions of Americans who don't believe in this public health message. And I just don't know how, I, and it scares me. Dr. Rothman, we had talked a little bit about how there are some big changes that the pandemic ushered in to uh, medical care and public health, one of them being uh, telehealth um, and other adaptations that kind of helped address the issues of COVID-19. Do you envision these changes to be sustainable or do you think we're gonna drift back to the old normal? Um, I think both. So if you look, you know, we went from doing three dozen telemedicine visits a week to doing millions of them. I mean, we were totally telemedicine. And, and if you look now, I think we're a little less than 25%. It's interesting. You know which department does it the most? If you think about it, you'll know, but you have to think about it. Psychiatry? Psychiatry because effective psychiatrists don't have to do a physical exam every time they see a patient. It's sort of the one field where the physical exam, they do it when they initially see, but often you don't have to. And so psychiatry, and that's a national piece of data too, that of all the specialties, psychiatry is the one that continues. Um, I think, you know, when you look at telemedicine, um, some of it's great, it's, it's, it's uh, increases access for patients to healthcare. There's some, you know, and it's a little tricky, right? So for, if you look at the number one reason our patients from impoverished neighborhoods don't miss their appointments, it's transportation. People that, you know, they need, they have a wheelchair, no one can come pick them up. They have two buses, they can't do, it's raining. So if you look at the reasons, the number one reason patients miss their clinic visits, it's transportation. If you're able to overcome that by telemedicine, think how, much better those patients will be. 
the little inequality you have to work through, as I talked before, not everyone's got good internet and not everyone has access to good computers. And so you got to deal with that. And I think as a country, to be honest, I think that'll be relatively cheap. Um, the other issue, your public health people, you can think through it. When the Congressional Budget Office scores telemedicine, you know what the CBO is? So, right, so when they're doing budgets for Medicare and Medicaid, Telemedicine scores very expensive for them because it increases access. So more people see their doctors. And so we're going to have to come to think through that. That might be true in the short run, but in the long run, we're going to save money because people will be healthier and not going to sit there with diabetes out of control because we're going to look at them. We're not going to make them travel to look at their skin wound or their ulcer after they have beds. I mean, all that stuff long term is better, but they don't score it that way in CBO. And so we, we're going to have to, as a country, accept that maybe in the short term, it'll, short term it'll cost us more, but long term, it's going to provide better health and has cost savings. And that's, I think, going to work. But you also have these big problems with interstate licensure that um, is a big issue. So, right, you cannot do telemedicine across the state unless you're licensed in the state of the patient because that is practicing medicine without a license in that state. And so we've been working through the whole pandemic to, to introduce legislation federally to try to fix some of that. But as I have today, like my wife sees patients, they may be in Virginia, they drive to McDonald's in Maryland, park in the parking lot, so that they're physically in the state of Maryland so she can see them on telemedicine. That was through the whole pandemic. So we have a lot of issues there that we have to deal with. You don't think about that, but that is one of the biggest issues about not what the hinders telemedicine, especially, you know, in a border state, you know, we're surrounded by, you know, 30 minutes from the Pennsylvania border, 40 minutes from Virginia and 50 minutes from DC. So, you know, we have patients from all those jurisdictions and um, it's better for the patient if they don't always have to come here, like after, they have surgery, you can just zoom in a hole, make sure the moon's good, right? Uh, but um, that would be practicing without a license, I think, today. So we're, we're trying to get that sort of changed over time. Dr. Grothman, I want to ask you about Johns Hopkins um, global collaboration. Um, you know, um, uh, some, such as, for example, Johns Hopkins Ramco Healthcare. During the global pandemic, can you tell me tell us more about these endeavors, and are we going to see more more hospitals doing the same thing? So, um, multiple academic centers in the U.S. now, and non-academic centers help um, help health systems around the world. You know, uh, we've been doing it, gosh, 25, 30 years, I think. Um, Cleveland Clinic, Mayo. Um, CSINI, MD Anderson, a bunch of the academics. And I think some of the non-academic large health systems in the US, I think HCA owns hospitals. And so, um, so that's not a new phenomenon. Um, we have a very good joint venture with Soy Ramco to help care for the 350,000 employees and dependents in the kingdom that um, get their care through uh, Johns Hopkins Ramco Healthcare, as you mentioned. You know, it's, um, it's for us, you know, it's interesting. As I told you, when Mr. Hopkins gave the gift, it was to help the health of our community, but our community has grown to be both a national and international community. So we go to places where we think we can make an impact on local populations by partnering with health systems 
to, to ensure the quality of care they provide um, is at the Hopkins level. So, um, you know, in some ways it, it's, uh, the pandemic hurt, uh, hinted that a little bit because normally we will send some of our practitioners to take care of people in the kingdom, but we, we just couldn't do that for lots of the pandemic because the rules were just too hard to couldn't travel. So I think we're starting to get back to that now. Thank you, Dr. Rothman. Um, I had a question. Um, you've had a long and storied career in research. What do you think are the biggest um, gaps in clinical research and areas being studied from your perspective? What do you think needs to be improved in terms of clinical research? Well, clinical research is and basic research of partners. So I, I'll tell you, what areas, what fields do we need to make major breakthroughs in? Because uh, it's gotta be, it flows from the bench to the patient, that's just the system. Before the pandemic, I would tell you the list was cancer is, um, the care of cancer patients now is dramatically different First of all, you know, heart, uh, I'll go back history, heart disease was the first one in my lifetime. In the old days, when I was an intern, you gave morphine to a person having a heart attack. To just take away their pain so their heart rate slowed down. And then you give them bacon and eggs for breakfast. And that's how you treated uh, a heart attack. Uh, you know, we're talking 1980, what, two, three. So we've made a lot of progress in heart disease, right? Heart disease today, you know, you guys don't know, but like if you were in a in a any school, you you'd have faculty dropping dead of heart attacks all the time because we really didn't understand heart disease. So we make great progress in heart disease. The second disease we make great progress with was HIV. I was at the beginning of the AIDS epidemic. We didn't know what caused. We didn't even know virus caused it when I began, and it wasn't that long till it went from a uniformly lethal, awful disease to one that is a chronic disease. So, you know, and if you think about it, not that long, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not that old. I may look it, but I'm actually not that old. Um, the, the one that we're working now is cancer. And there's some really cool cancer therapies. By the way, I'm on the board of Merck and Merck sells Kingtruda, which is probably, you know, the best selling uh, PD-1 inhibitor. So, um, but that's not just immuno-oncology agents. There's directed therapy, there's gene therapies coming, there's CAR T cells. There's, I think cancer, we won't cure it. The same way we don't cure heart disease, but we're going to make huge inroads into keeping people with cancer, living longer with better lives. Right? And that's sort of what the goal. Before the pandemic, the next one would be neurodegenerative disease. Well, I'd argue we've made, we still don't know enough to really been able to develop important therapeutics. It's, it's getting there, but it's not. I'll now add, we have to be better prepared for the next pandemic with better therapeutics, better antibodies, better surveillance systems, better virology, because I don't want, this is two and a half years of hell. I don't just don't want to do it again. So we need to, I think, get our pandemic response up. So I'll add that to the list where it wouldn't have been two years ago, but Bill Gates would have told you it was, and of course, that's why he's Bill Gates and I'm not. So. Dr. Rothman, um, by now we can all agree that COVID-19 should be a teachable moment for the field in many ways, um, such as with emergency response, equitable access to care, and ethics. From your perspective, uh, what lessons are we learning here? So a lot. As I said, we, we don't have, we haven't invested in public health, but I think it's highlighted the health inequities in our country more than anything has before. 
I mean, it was front and center uh, in terms of who was getting it, who was getting really sick from it, especially early in the pandemic, the numbers were startling. So I think it really was an aha moment for any of those that doubted, which wasn't people in medicine, but others, that there are health inequities among our citizens and that it results in, 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 a, in poor health for a lot of people. And, and you know, Martin Luther King's quote is, there's no inequity that's worse than inequity in healthcare. Uh, and so I, I think that's when we got to tackle it. So if you ask me, the, a lot of lessons learned, but, uh, and again, it wasn't a lesson learned for many of us, but it, it highlighted better than anything I've seen recently. Um, and hopefully the momentum to try to attack some of those will carry us through the end of the pandemic. So at the top of the hour, we heard a lot about all of your great achievements over the course of your career. Um, I, I would be interested to know what would you identify as being the most rewarding aspect for you? Career or life? Both. Okay, life. I married uh, a smart, beautiful, intelligent woman. And I, we've, I met her when I was an intern and she did a consult on my patient for the ID service in the fall of 1984. And we've been together ever since. Uh, and the three kids, all the rest of it pales in, in terms of the family that I have and, uh, and the success they've had personally. But, and you know, it's funny, it's, it's pers professional success, but they're good people, which to be honest, is more important than anything else. So that's, I think for me personally, professionally, you know, I'm retiring this year. So I've been able to start to think back at what, and I did some good science. I helped make, I help consult for companies that made two important drugs um, along the way. I, I feel that, you know, it's funny. I'm not, that wasn't, you know, I'm on the board of Merck, but I did this actually way before that when I was just interested in some pathways and pharmaceutical companies were entering those same pathways and they made drugs to targets that we identified and they did very well. And so I, I you know, that's sort of fulfilling for you to see sort of that basic science, which I always wanted result in in, in, in discovering of targets that pharma can then effectively target with therapeutics. And uh, so that was real big for me. But I think professionally, I always tell people, it's, it's not the buildings I build or the institutes I raise money for, those are all great, but it's the people along the way that you're able to help with their career path. Right? By far and away the best thing you do. And you know, that could be you know, it's funny, I, I see, I walk the halls here and I see faculty here, so you probably don't remember me, but you taught me immunology when I was a first year student at Columbia. I cannot tell you how many people I've seen like that. I was just at a meeting in Chicago two weeks ago and uh, this guy came down the elevator. He said, you're Paul Rothman. I said, yep. And, and I had been his attending when he was a 30 med student at Columbia. And he reminded me of a case so I, I don't want to brag. He told me, he said, there was a patient there with band pneumonia and you said, that patient is really sick. Watch them. And, and that patient died the next day. And, um, and he said, I'll never forget how important just that skill of looking at someone and saying that person is really sick is to a clinician. And you know, I hadn't seen the guy in you know 40 years. So those moments where 
along the way, you've impacted somebody that you, you got them, you helped them get a paper, you got in the right lab, they got the right fellowship, you help them with their science, whatever it is, um, that those are the most meaningful moments for me. Thank you for, for everything so far. And we have one final question for you. And this is a question that we ask last uh, to all of our guests. And congratulations on your upcoming retirement, by the way. And I think for that reason, you're actually uniquely qualified to answer this question, I think. So as you exit uh, your, your long career, what advice do you have for students of public health or medicine as they enter this challenging but often rewarding field? I thought you were going to ask me where the best place to ski out in Colorado. <laughs> well, that too, yeah. <laughs> well, uh, a couple of things. Follow your passion because, you know, it's a long career and you really want to be studying something that you think is important because you're going to work really hard. And I think you want to find something. And sometimes it's not obvious what that thing is. But boy, if you can find something you're passionate about, it'll make those years go a lot faster and you get a lot more satisfaction. I think that's one. Two, balance work and life. I don't do that well, so I'm telling you. I, I'm a workaholic, but I had a great wife and kids. Uh, but at times, you know, when the kids were young, I left the lab at six o'clock, actually 5.30 every day, so I could be there at six when the babysitter quit. So. And I cook dinner, the poor kids. But so, you know, so just weigh, weigh, weigh life and family, whatever you do, if you don't have a family, significant others, or just what, balance your life a little bit. And I say, I don't do it well, but I tell everyone to do it because I think it makes you happy over the long run. And um, finally, be kind. Be kind to your patients, be kind to the people you work with, be kind to strangers. But, uh, that's why I love being in Iowa. In Iowa, people are always kind. You know, you don't see that in the cities on the East Coast, but in Iowa, everyone was kind. And I bet you it's a lot that way, you know, it, you know in Cleveland too. So just be kind to people because uh, life's short. Great advice. Uh, Dr. Rothman, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. We really appreciate it. All right. It was my pleasure. Good luck with your careers. Thanks so Thanks much. You. Take care now.